Live from Discovery One, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. You know, Tim, I first thought this was going to be a nice, peaceful place with some classical music in the background just kind of floating around. It is. Well, I mean, it's cool to be at the space. Yeah, I agree, but I, I don't know if you've heard the voice. It, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, that I, don't, I don't know who programmed the uh, intercom guy. You know, and then we here. were, you know, I was just walking through the hall, and the airlock right behind me opened up, and luckily I got through the next passage. But that's a little concerning. Yeah, I think this may not be as uh, pleasant as I had hoped to just be. You know, we're on our way to Jupiter. Yeah, I can see out the window there. Everything the movies have led me to believe about space travel is that it's a nice, safe thing to do, and yeah. this seems to be completely uh, and everyone can wrong. hear you scream. Oh, wrong place! But <laughs> man, what what movies about space have I watched? <laughs> now I think about it. Um, well, while we uh, still have air to breathe, yeah, we should make sure we thing. get this podcast recorded, yeah. and hopefully afterwards we will get you back to a safe place. Because Nick, I hear you are a father. I am I, a. F- Again. Uh, <laughs> I am a father. I have been for six years, Tim. Um, no, yes. Um, Mercy, an- uh, my newest daughter, about a month old as of this recording. Well, four weeks, which is not quite a month, mm-hmm. how things go. Mercy, what's her middle name? Esperanza. Esperanza. That's it's right. Portuguese for hope, and I always butcher it, and Natasha will eventually beat it into me. <laughs> but <laughs> but she, she, for those of you who don't know, my wife grew up in Brazil, and so it's kind of... Nice for, to have some Portuguese in one of our names. And it's it's kind of sort of ironic. You've had a your first son was has a Russian a Russian name. name, yeah, because we're all very Russian. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nicholas, Natasha, it made sense. It, it works. <laughs> it made sense at the time. <laughs> Serenity doesn't really have any other namesakes, does she? That I know of. Well, just Rennie Jones. Well, <laughs> but but I mean <laughs> that came after the that fact. Came, no, no. It, well, her middle name's Anne with an E. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. For those uh, Anne Green Gables fans out there. Okay. Serenity with a Y and Anne with an E. Yep. And, an e. Yep. <laughs> and Hayden with a Y. Um, yes. Not Hayden. And, and yeah, and an E too. E N and not just Oh, N. right, right. So, so yeah. all right. Any other names we need to spell no. before we go well, on? <laughs> um, no. Okay. <laughs> I remember there was in, in middle school in the library, there was a, some book like Susan the Five is Silent. Her name was like S U. 5 a.m. or something like that. I don't know. It was. I just remember the title. I never read any more of it, but yeah. That makes me wonder how old of a book that was. Because in Peanuts, there was a character named Five, apparently because his dad was like annoyed by all the numbers that were taking over modern life. This was in the 60s, yeah. mind you. Um, and so he decided that he renamed all his family after like numbers. And so there was this character Five and his twin sisters, six and seven. That's awesome. Or something like that. But. All right. Well, so, uh, air quick here, Tim. So we better get to <laughs> to our uh, story school. Yes. Story school today. We have a topic that has been on our list for quite a while and yes. kept getting pushed around, but uh, finally we're going to tackle it and see if there's as much to it as we thought at one time. <laughs> um, but that topic... Well, don't, don't, go, don't go straight to it. We'll, go around, we'll be around the bush a little bit. No, <laughs> we need to talk around it for yeah. a little while and then sort of eventually imply what we're going to yeah. talk about. Yes. Um, okay, well, anyway, the topic is the arts of implication, if, uh, 
That wasn't a ham-fisted hinting enough for you. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, don't you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I thought it would be interesting, Nick, to start this conversation off with actually looking at a definition of implying. Oh, um, we, the, we're pulling out the Webster's.com. Uh, yeah, sort of. Okay. Anyway, according to my Mac dictionary, maybe it's from dictionary.com, I forget where oh, it comes man, from. Oh, man, that's not Webster's.com. I know. But anyway, uh, implies, strongly suggests the truth or existence of something not expressly stated. And where this, how does this come into storytelling, Nick? Well, you can either say stuff straight out, which we talked about in our exposition podcast way back when, uh-huh. or you can imply it. You can show, not tell would be the most normal way to say it, but there's when more we, layers than, than simply showing. Sometimes it's you know, plot points that you don't say outright, but you just, the audience can connect the dots. You hint at it. You hint at it. There's... um. Yeah, and sometimes things that aren't important, but it just, you know, little things that, like, you really dig deep, like, oh, that's there. Color the background a little bit. Or sometimes it's um, things that characters do that um, later on you're like, oh, those were all clues. You know, mysteries do this a lot. You know, where they, there will be certain turns of phrases or words they use or things, and you're just like, what? You know, and they're, they're soft footing it. It, it, it can it, almost be seen as an Easter egg, but depending on how much stock you put into it, there can be a whole lot more to the story underneath. Yeah. If, if you apply, like, I guess in when we talked about the searchers, Brian pointed out that on one of the tombstones, it said the John Wayne's characters, like mother family okay. relation. And so th- there was some sort of connection to why John Wayne had a prejudice against Apaches in yeah. that movie. So, I mean, and that's like... It's different than saying, I hate sand, and then, (laughs) you know, that's more overt. Yes. (laughs) I I had to throw that in there. I mean, and that's, like I said, that's almost an Easter egg that, like, you'd be hard to spot that on your first or even your second viewing. Um, But then you see that and like, ooh, I'm going to make a whole conspiracy theory out of it, which is a very popular way to talk about movies online nowadays. That's true. Yeah, like, ah, all the Pixar films are in the same universe. (laughs) Or Jar Jar was really evil. Yeah. Or et cetera. But that's not to say that there aren't cases where the storyteller is purposely putting little hints in there to lead you in a certain path. Well, you know, every once in a while I like to make fun of Ernest Hemingway on this podcast. Uh But from one of my understanding, his idea was that the story you're reading is like the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing 10% and there's a lot of emotions and feelings beneath that aren't stated. And when you read Hemingway, you really have to read it that way. Otherwise, it comes off as very like bland and not important. But you've got to read into it all the stuff underneath. Right. Um, so Ernest, I mean, anyone who does this sort of um, very sparse type of writing style tends to hope they're implying things. <laughs> and if they're not, they have a very boring book on their Exactly, hands. exactly. I think um, my guess is things like, um, I think we've talked about The Road on here, that okay. book. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just the facts, but because the facts are related so bare bones, there's this weight of emotion beneath it. Well, that's the, I think that's the idea behind it. Well, and it leaves the reader more room to interpret things, mm-hmm. to kind of dig deep for themselves and not just be spoon-fed all the information. An implication is not quite the same as ambiguity. Yeah, no, it's it's different. In my own writings, I, I, sometimes I'm relatively ambiguous. But I think sometimes I just let, I want to imply the meaning or imply the the theme because you say it outright, it's a, it'd be, it's a little it's a little ham fisted. Yeah, and that's where we talked about sometimes the author getting a little too preachy. Like, yeah. and, and you know, obviously, obviously we've talked before about 
not burying your message so deep that no one can get it. Yeah, and that's the problem. Yeah, I've I've wrestled with finding that layer well. <laughs> but if you can tell your story in such a way that people dig for the for the message themselves and by really putting the thought into it then that helps them internalize it more for themselves and rather than just like oh i must do this because the story told me from from the audience's point of view implication as opposed to outright stating things makes them involves them deeper in the story Hmm. or Hmm. requires them to be deeper involved to, to really get it because you're you're having this give and take like that you're having a you know reader response, you're 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 betting on a reader response as opposed to telling them what they should feel or what they should think or how they should connect the dots. Mm-hmm. You're leaving the dots there and hoping that they they will pay attention enough and care enough to work with it. And there's certainly different extremes about how you can do that. I talked way back a long time ago about Pickpocket, yeah. uh, directed by Robert Brisson, who. Definitely believed in having, he had a very specific way he wanted his actors to work in a certain style where they didn't show very much emotion at all. Mm-hmm. And the audience basically sort of had to read into it almost as if they were wearing a mask in a Greek like tragedy. Greek, okay. Yeah, and I then, didn't even mention that. And so basically they sort of had to read into, you know, what the character was was thinking behind his kind of very blank expressionless face which sometimes i wonder if george lucas beside himself was trying to do that with the star wars I, prequels I, I, I feel like and again this is a slightly off track, i feel like he purposely especially with anakin and this especially the second movie the love i think he must have been having a, a specific style he wanted mm-hmm. you don't do it like that yeah naturally yeah i i don't think you do either i mean a lot of people will say no nah, it's just bad directing well it's he was directing them in a certain position. I think he was very purposely aiming for this kind of... I think of, an old school, a very old school film critic only understands. <laughs> which, and honestly, probably wasn't... The, I'm not saying it was the best idea <laughs> because yeah. most audiences have no idea, but George Lucas has always had this kind of auteur vision of himself, yeah. and it, it just seems like the sort of thing he would try to do. Now, since we're on visuals now... In visual media, one way to be implied is that is the emotion. We talked about last episode with music. You know, the music really undergirds the emotion. Underscores. Underscores it, heightens it. But the actor can communicate a lot with just a little, with eyes or with a twitch of the mouth. Or Uh um, Tim and I's favorite example for this would be... You know um, it's coming. Wild Wild West. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, Lost. Lost, Um, yeah. Come on. But we've been, re- if you have not listened to the Weekly Hijack, you should. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been watching Lost, and we we're amazed with how many clues are just in facial expressions about things and drop lines and, or, or just normal, normal interact. Like the whole conversations take place with Jack and Locke looking at each other. <laughs> just those actors and the, the best actors in that show can communicate volumes with just the stare. Yeah. Which is not an easy thing. I mean, there's a big difference in acting between on the stage and for the camera. On stage, you know, you want to be very expressive and mm-hmm. very played to the back of the house. And camera, you have to be very kind of minute and keep those expressions realistic. But at the same time, you still have to be expressionist. I mean, unless you're yeah. doing, unless you're working for Robert Brisson, you have yeah. to, you still have to communicate things with your face and it's a different style of communication than you would use in real life. Yeah. Normally in real life, people are very guarded about their personal expressions and they're not like going to go through these like 
or they manage. wear it on their sleeve. You yes, know? <laughs> it's going to be one or the other. You know, usually, but for, but for a lot of well, okay, yeah, <laughs> certain people, they're they can't. It just they can't hold it in at all. They'll be trying to be normal, but you can tell not body language ninety percent. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So I mean, it it does really depend on the person, but the actor they have to harness that they have to make it real somehow um expressing you know letting the audience in on their thoughts you know, when they can but, say no and their face says yes, yes. you know that sort of thing or uh-huh. or uh i'm not sure if this guy eating cereal is really trying to bait us or if he's just an idiot <laughs> exactly <laughs> or i guess i guess in the in the um what's his name michael emerson who plays ben on lost uh-huh. um said one time it's like his scripts are always like he says it as truthfully as he can, more than he has ever been before. You know, he says he, that would come like every other script. <laughs> so he's constantly playing this guy who's like trying to be dead honest and, you know, uh, is it? Right. And he does, it comes off. You know, even if you watch it, you're like, well, he might be saying the truth, you know. Or, or maybe even the actor thinks he's saying yeah. the truth and... But he doesn't know if he is or not. But yeah. he acts. He has to act as if he is. Well, I do know, and the scripts for Lost, besides having a lot of language in them, say a lot about the internal reactions of the characters. Mm. So I think that might communicate itself why the actors do such a good job of yeah that, doing that. That that could be. I mean, I, I know yeah, when. I think, sorry, real quick. But I think is it a weird thing where the writing is overt, so that the acting becomes implicit in some ways. Well, that makes sense because acting and directing classes that boy back in the day I would take they would actually there there's a format there's a way to write out like beat for beat what the the character's internal process yeah. is like what are they thinking in this particular moment and I don't know that I mean I'm not a professional at this and I don't think actors generally try to keep that thing in their mind as they're going through the scene but it's good background information so that they understand they're not just reading a lot you know repeating lines from a page yeah. they understand the internal process of what a character is going on is doing and that's a lot of that's a lot of background work that will never be explicitly yeah. <laughs> uh, on screen or on the page it's interesting. We actually decided to pick this conversation because you were reading Allegiant. Yes. And you made some observations. Well, I, I've observed this when Allegiant just kind of reminded me of it, how even authors who are just writing fictional books have to act in a certain sense and they have to imply um, characters' actions and motivations in a certain way. And sometimes writers can overact a little bit. Like they want to express the character's feeling by making them punch a wall or furrow their brow and or this and that. And sometimes... Tug, get, tug on their hair, that's something from my <laughs> wheel of time. There's a lady who's always tugging on her hair. <laughs> and I, I noticed that it was a... I liked the um, Veronica Roth's books a lot, the Divergent series, yeah. which I'll talk about in the second half. But like one, not- one tell I noticed a lot she did a lot was having characters like chew on the inside of their cheek. Mm-hmm. And at first it was just like the main characters, like, okay, this is a quirk of hers. But then like other characters would do it and then be like, I don't think that's that common of a, <laughs> of a, of a quirk. But anyway. But it communicates the emotion. Yeah. Because here's the thing. As a writer, you want to show and not tell. So you don't say, she's angry, seriously, or she's anxious. She chews on her cheek. Yeah. But the problem is, it still becomes, or it can still become overacting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know we all time occasionally, there were certain things that the, some, especially the Aes Sedai, the women would do all the time that people would, they become, t- I mean, granted, there's 14 books and 600 pages. I mean, things ha- repeat. Sure, and, sure. But there's, you know, there's this sort of like, 
clicking tongues and they're and they're I don't remember where they are now, but they came up a lot. Uh-huh. It's one of those things too where I know I learned or I've learned more and more over time as a writer. You start with like he said angrily or he said <laughs> stomping his feet, you know, all these actions with the but as you get better at implying, the dialogue itself takes care of the emotion. Mm-hmm. Now again, some dialogue you need that because it's it can be read two ways or it's supposed to be read in the opposite of normal. Yeah, and when you have a scene when a character finally loses it or whatever, you know, it makes yeah. sense. But, you know, unless unless your character's constantly blabbing his mouth, he doesn't know how to shut up, you yeah. know, he's constantly kind of one of these people, most people are not going to, like, go through some of the outward, like, you know, great... Like, like rolling your eyes should not happen too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, occasionally, you know. Yeah. But, you know, if they roll their eyes a lot. Or constantly clenching their fists or, or their you know, teeth. Or yeah. Their, <laughs> yeah. So you have to be careful about that. And, you know, find some creative ways to kind of. Like pacing. I found in Strin Fred, uh, there's a lot of pacing. Oh, really? As you've well, gone back Well, Fre- and- Fred especially. But it's one of those things I have to really pay attention yeah. to. I mean, it, it's certainly good. fun. If, if it's yeah. a character quirk, if it's something that that character does a yeah. lot, but, it, it can kind of make yeah, sense. Yeah. But you so, have to. Balance it. So, what are the impl- what are the implications? What are the implications? <laughs> implications? No. What are what are the benefits and what are the downsides? I mean, obviously, we're we've been talking pretty like there is a good thing generally implying things. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we're implying. So, so. <laughs> well, what are the downsides? I think we've we've sort of hit that in our exposition discussion a bit. You know, sometimes, like I said, you can't constantly cover your message. We've been talking a lot about the character implications because there's a lot. You know, you talk about the iceberg thing. Most yeah. characters, they they have a whole iceberg of backstory yeah. and what have you beneath them. And sometimes you want to actually dig into that backstory and explore it. Yeah. And sometimes it's just more of a, a hint. A hint, yeah. Like, they really like Sudokus. Why not? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, I guess that's more color. It's not really backstory. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then sometimes there's parts of the world, like, um, I don't know if this would count, but I wonder, it was a big deal when J.K. Rowling said that... Um, Dumbledore was gay. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if there was implication, you know, very subtle stuff in the book. I've only read the books once. But, you know, because it would obviously change how you... It, it might change how you write certain parts of the character. Maybe it doesn't. Uh-huh. Um, but I know mystery book, long-term mystery books that unrelated to that particular issue. Long-term books that have mystery, like the Harry Potter series, they tend... They'll, no, the, you know, there'll be clues that they'll leave that you can pick up on, then maybe a later book becomes a plot point. Or maybe not. Uh-huh. Like, oh, that's why those people were doing that. You know, right. especially in mysteries of sorts. Yeah. Or sometimes even fantasy books, if you have some sort of throwaway detail that, mm-hmm. you know, applies, like I'm thinking just of in Newell's Rising, just because it's the one I'm more, most familiar yeah. with, we mentioned the imperial fields of Abilium or something yeah. like that. And the implication was because they were talking about like there was a conversation about produce, which was kind of a a plot thread to be dealt with later. It wasn't a huge deal in that book, but I didn't say anything else about it except that you just kind of got the idea that there's these this settlement, this area somewhere where that supplies a lot of the uh, empire of Therian's food, or at least it did before the the cataclysm. So, like, implication both lives us. Like a shadow through fog in some way, you know. Like it's, mm-hmm. in some ways, it adds mystery that might get solved. Like, oh, there's something there, and we'll go fix it. Or sometimes it just adds depth. Yeah, you have a stage, but 
it makes it look like it's bigger than it is. You know, like for a world or whatever. Sure. And then building. sometimes it, it's, you know, more in the character thematic thing. It's more this that gentle touch that makes it feel like it's nuanced or it's... There's uh, there's some unstated reason why the character thinks this way. Yeah. Or you're having a theme through the whole, you know, a real subtle theme that's just kind of implied through... It's one of those things that it holds it all together and you can go and dig deep like, oh, this is why this... These is why Huck does this and not that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, if nothing else, implication tends to widen a book, deepen a book in many ways. Because if you just say it straight out, it just is. Yeah. It's like what we talked about with music. It's the abstract version of... We, we like of an to, idea. Yeah, we like to talk about... Um, have we talked about in here that comic book about comic books? Understanding Comics? Yeah. Is that the one? Um, Scott McCloud is yeah. the one who wrote it. I think it's Understanding have Comics. We, I don't I, know if we mentioned it here. I don't know if we have or not. It's a very but, good book. Yeah, really interesting book. If you're curious about why, if you've got kids and they're into comic books or graphic novels or if, in general, if you, you just like to understand the phenomenon more, it's a great tool for that. But one of the, the concepts from it that stuck with Nick and I the most from it is he talks about abstract art, which... Most Christians don't really care for abstract yeah. art too much because, you know, we believe in an objective objective truth. There's things that are true, capital T, and abstract art tends to kind of... Say, it's very subjective. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the advantages, he pointed out, of abstract art is the more... I think what he used a lot for this was a smiley face. Yeah. You know, if you use have just your generic smiley face, two dots and a smile, it's very generic. You can re- different people can read different things into yeah. that. The more abstract something is, you know, clouds. Yeah. You, you look at a cloud. One person sees a bunny. Another yeah. person sees a horse. So, so implication is, I guess, real, similar. Not quite the same thing. Where the more you imply things, the more it gives a sense of depth, of layers, mm-hmm. of it's not necessarily one thing yet. Yeah, it's not cut and dried. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Which maybe you don't want, but can add a lot of... I think that's why art, you know, fine art, I have air quotes here, uh-huh. <laughs> um, tends to thrive on implication. All the art critics love books that are more vague and more... And, and then you get into the ambiguous, which is a whole different related right. issue. Right. But yeah, I guess it's more... Literary. More, more, more masterful to... To not say things outright. Right. And there's a time and place for both things. Yeah. I think I think there's a, <laughs> to borrow a page from Ecclesiastes, Yeah, there's a time to be blunt and there's a time to be vague. So th- yeah, so this really is our, our flip side to our exposition. Yeah. So you should well. go check that out <laughs> sometime. Not that yeah. we're telling you to stop this podcast now. Keep listening, please. Yes, please. It's very good. But <laughs> go check that out sometime. Are there more examples of, okay, what about... Ray Bradbury was he? Did he like to imply in themes, or was he more straightforward? Do you uh, think he's uh, he's strange, but he's very poetic in the sense. Normally, you know what he's talking about, but he'll he'll ramp up the uh, the emotion to uh, like one hundred and ten percent. So I'm not sure it's the same thing. Okay, but there's books like um. So I'll, I'm going to talk about this more in the second half. But Tarkin, the book Tarkin, uh, a Star Wars book. Uh-huh. But there was actually quite a bit of they never quite stated stuff outright. There's like like, like this is kind of this cat and mouse game between the empire and these rebels, not the official rebels, but these terrorists. Okay. okay. And a lot of times it was almost stated after the fact, how things were connected. Hmm. It's like, it was just kind of stated as if you should have been keeping up with them. Oh, so interesting. it was interesting. So it was, it was much more subtle than I was used to in that sort of novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was almost more throwaway. I'm like, ah, and you know, and it just kind of, they expect you to follow this sort of logic without spending a lot of time explaining it. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't had that in a book for a while. And I think things like, um, I want to say The Forever War, which I read, was books like that read slower because there's a lot that happens between the w- sentences oh, okay. in some ways. Uh-huh. Now, they don't describe everything. It just it goes from action to action or emotion to emotion. And you have to kind of read between. You have to build up the, the transitional things in some okay. places. There's some, some old sci-fi is kind of like that. What about in cases, because you talked about implied themes earlier. Yeah. Implied themes are a little strange, though, because they're usually like, like, say, we'll go back to Lost, because yeah. that's kind of have it on the brain tonight. I apologize for those <laughs> of you who don't like it. You know, there's often a theme of fathers. Yeah. You know, just because there's it's a lot everywhere. of them. Yeah, it's everywhere. So there you have theme by repetition, in a sense. Yeah. Theme by repetition. I like that. <laughs> and maybe this is a completely different topic, the whole theme thing. But like, what I'm trying to think of a, another good example of where, like, what's, what's, uh, we've, I, we've been talking a lot about implied well, messages. I, I, I want, I'm I, trying to think of some well, good I'm examples kinda, of it. Well, okay. I'm going to go back to, see, we'll go back to favorites just because those are ones I've studied the most. But like, Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. there's obviously a theme, but it's played in so many different notes in so many different ways. It's not, direct by any means and I, I, that might not be the same as implicit okay but it's, how, how about this then because top uh an example we both are very familiar with lord of the rings yeah to say that uh lord of the rings are all about preserving nature would miss half the point yeah but that it is certainly an i would say an implied theme of it about the uh, you know enjoying the, the outdoors the, the love of nature comes through very clearly the 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 anti-view of industrialization. Um, I mean, that gets picked up a little bit more explicitly in the movies just because you see, you You see see it. it, But even then they're not really talking that much about it. Well, it's interesting. You know, sometimes as Christian artists, we're, you know, you wrestle with, Hey, how much should I talk about, you know, directly about Christian things or not? And what's interesting, I think is the more something is intrinsically part of you, you tend to imply it in works just because that's, you know, I think that's what Tolkien was doing. I don't know they set out to say, I'm going to write a, against industrialization. I think he just felt very strongly about... He had ideas. Nature. Yeah. He had ideas that he, that just naturally tended to express themselves. I think it's very hard yeah. not to imply things if it's something that is part of your worldview, that you, you, you deeply believe. It's hard not for it to come through just naturally you know just bleed through you know like you know like you know you, you take a mark and ryan paper and it bleeds through the other side i think that's maybe how a lot of implication works i mean unconscious or semi-conscious implication <laughs> but sometimes it has to be a conscious decision to unconsciously let it bleed through yeah you, you know if you're too concerned about we've said this before we're yeah. probably retreading old ground again but <laughs> if if you're too conscious about getting a certain message across that's you're not implying it you're yeah. forcing it as opposed to i don't know there's ideas that like if you well here's here's another example from new Wells rising yeah. which maybe i shouldn't go back to but i enjoyed having the defiant the yeah. evil rebel group i enjoyed having them basically disdain motherhood basically because of amira the, yeah. who is a mother who left and i never i don't talk about this a whole lot but like the defiant have women in their ranks and they recruit women forcibly for, you know, yeah. for w- war purposes. But they have, th- they actually have this because of a mirror, they have this like, or we're going to leave mothers behind because their devilities are low. Their loyalties are divided. Yeah. And their devilities are loyal. <laughs> yeah. And I, I purposely en- enjoy putting that in there because I think there's, 
in modern culture, there's a very a strong push for women being involved in things, but mothers are kind of left. Like the draft? Like, I won't pull that in there, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah. You know, but you know yeah. what I mean. You know, modern feminism is a lot about the glory of womanhood, and women can yeah. be whatever they want, but okay, if you want to be a mother, yeah, fine, whatever. Okay, and now we're right. I got a good example now. Okay, okay. <laughs> you watch. I didn't watch it, but I heard the end of... One of the seasons of Legend of Korra. Uh huh. Yeah. It was highly implied, or people say it was implied that um, she committed suicide or was thinking about suicidal thoughts. That's season one. Season and one. And then season three has an implication too, apparently. Is uh, that right? Season four? four. Okay, I didn't watch it. Uh, well, yeah, the the <laughs> suicide thing. Or was that I don't know. theory? It was almost conspiracy theory. Like, I don't, because they, they never really got. You could read it into it, um, but they never... Yeah, that that one's kind of iffy. Okay. Season four, I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but in season four, they started dropping hints pretty much throughout the season that Korra and Asami were... Yeah. Had, oh, like Mulan in Once Upon a Time. <laughs> yeah, basically. You know, that was just kind of... Yeah. Like, when it happened and implied, I'm like, what? I didn't catch that at all, but everyone else on the internet is like, oh! Yeah, yeah, no, they they were dropping little things about them having an interest, and yeah. at the very end, they kind of go off somewhere hand in hand, and it's it's not again, it's not explicit, but it's very obviously implied or yeah. heavily implied, which is like almost the same thing. <laughs> so, but you could you could you know be the thing with implicit implied things you can miss if you're not paying attention. Yes, yeah, which it's, I apparently missed. I wish I missed stuff like that before. You know, like. Oh, that's what's happening. Like, what? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the it, double takes. It, it's, uh, I don't know. It, it is, I guess, the one potential drawback to implying things, as we said before. Yeah. If you bury it too deep, people might miss it. Oh, and then sometimes people use it to bury things. Yeah. On purpose. I mean, that's, that's like, true. I want to I say this, but I can't get away with it. They, would, they don't want to draw too much attention to it. I think Hitchcock would do that, you know. Yeah, probably. You know, like, I, wanna, I can't get around these, these, uh, what do they call those laws? They the were, Hayes Code. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of what he said. His his greatest money shot. Have you heard? I don't know. If, I don't remember if Brian's told you this, but at the end of North by Northwest. Okay. Basically, Cary Grant and the leading lady. He he's uh, pulling her up on t- onto their bunk bed, and they're but they're apparently on a train, and then the train goes into a tunnel, and he said that was his his money sex shot, basically. <laughs> The train going into it. Okay. T- yeah. And you, yeah. And see, you wouldn't even thought I that wouldn't if know, I had I would told never, you that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, people do that. I mean, people do that. People do that. So. so for for good and for evil, I guess. Yes. It's like puns. Like sometimes they're good, and sometimes you're like, no, <laughs> that didn't work, or not that sort of pun. Yeah. Oh, so, all right. Well, on that note, uh, so, sorry there to kind of bring down the <laughs> <laughs> the uh, quality of our podcast here. The yes, we've gone all lewd, uh, <laughs> but. We'll, we'll move on into our soundtrack. Okay, for my soundtrack today, I decided to go with something from The Legend of Zelda. Dun, dun, dun. Because uh, Link 
is a silent protagonist. Nintendo... You get those occasionally. Oh, yeah, you do like get those. Yeah, well, it's primarily in video games yeah. where the creators wants the... Basically want the gamer to feel like they are the, the character yeah. they're playing. They don't have... When the, the protagonist is silent, then they get to kind of inject themselves more. It's you the are everybody. Thing. Yeah, basically. But I think you could also read if you... If you don't want to be Link and you want to give Link his own personality, I think you can read in the lines some yeah. about him. So anyway, this is from Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Nick actually mentioned this last episode. This is Gerudo Peoples, dun, dun. Uh, and it's remixed by Scott Peoples. Who Yay, Scott Peoples. This was one of my first, like, I love this one. This is pretty early. This is a very old one. It's, like, uh, from 2000. Nice. So Enjoy.
And we're back. Hello, everyone. Hope you enjoyed grooving out to uh, Gerudo. I, Gerudo? Gerudo? I don't know. <laughs> Almost every Gerudo remix is awesome, though. It's a very catchy uh, song, as, yeah, as the best of video game music it should be. Kanji Kon- Koji Kondo, that's his name? Yeah. He's very good. Koji Kondo. Yeah. We are going to move on to our next segment now, which will be our take on Tales. So, do you want to flip a coin to see who goes first this time? Well, actually, we can't since we're, I forgot we're in a spaceship. Yeah, so it, we could flip coin. it, but it would, it, we, I'm not sure how it would stop. When it hits the ceiling, maybe, and bounces off. Or, maybe, that might be dangerous. Yeah. So, anyway, well, first, first one, first one to get thrown on an airlock loses. <laughs> All right, why don't you go ahead and, okay. and go first? So, so, we did do a Take a Tales a couple of episodes ago on TV, but we thought we'd do some, a book one. We, it's been a while since we tackled books. Yes, exactly. And we've been reading some stuff. So, yay. Um, I'm not sure whether I'll just do two today. One is Warbreaker by <laughs> Brandon Sanderson. Oh, I thought th- I thought you had re- this was going to be an all Star Wars one. No, it's not. Actually. I wouldn't pull this one in. Warbreaker by Sanderson. It's a standalone fantasy novel, which was part of the reason I read it because I'm like, okay, good. I can handle a standalone. I got it done right before Mercy was born. Um, Natasha's reading it as we record. Back but home. it was interesting. It was in a, it took me a while to get into. Like, it wasn't bad by any means, but it just it took me a while to get used to the characters. Basically, there's these two sisters, um, the oldest, they're princesses. The oldest is pledged to be married to the god king of the city as part of this treaty. But they send the younger sister instead, who was never prepared to marry the god king. Hmm. So you have the younger sister being married to this god king. You have the older sister feeling guilty and going to try to rescue her. And then you have um, kind of this character running around that seeming to want to do a rebellion of some sort in the city. There's war coming between these two nations, or breaker. And um, there's also, in the, there's God King, but there's other gods, and one of the main characters is this god named Light Song who doesn't believe in his own religion. Um, <laughs> so it was very interesting. It took me a while to be, I'm like, things with gods like that, I'm just like, this is weird. But they play it so like, they're just gods because they come, they return, like someone dies and then they come back, and then they're like, have super strength and stuff. Oh, like, weird. But there's no rules really for why they come back. Okay. Um, it just it seems ra- it seems random, and huh. so that's kind of how this city has made their base of religion on. If they come back, they're a god in their minds. Okay. Anyways, weird. kind of kind of funky. Before we get into it, the characters are very interesting. What one thing I really enjoyed about it, once I got used to the world, I really liked it. The magic is pretty interesting. Um, the characters are great. All the characters, the bad characters, the good characters, and Sanderson is great characters. But I think what I most appreciate about it was that. The flip he did with all the characters, like the two sisters move a lot in different directions. I mean, there's a lot of character growth for a single book. Who you think are good guys, you know, the various, uh, like the, the mercenaries and the, the rebellion seeming guy, Vasher, they do a lot of flipping. There's a lot of like, almost like things are parallel in one way. And then by the end of the book, like everyone's flip sides or like their characters, their character, their personality has Changed so much, it's almost like they're on the other end of where they were to begin with. Huh. So there's a lot of this parallelism and a lot of this, I don't know, structurally, that was really fascinating. Took me a while to get into, once about halfway, I was hooked. The ending, it left me a little, like, it almost like it was too quick. Like, it was a good action-packed ending, but then I'm like, it felt like a lot of build-up for an ending that was good, and I'm not sure what I would change, but I'd almost wanted... More epilogue? Uh, more something. more, And I don't know what if it's more epilogue or more just I like these characters and you just dropped them or I don't know. But for standalone fantasy, it was, it, I enjoyed it. How would you compare it to previous Sanderson books that, well, you've, it's, it's, that you've talked about on this podcast? I know. <laughs> See, I'm trying. I'm eventually going to try to make it through all Sanderson because his 
I don't have a Jordan anymore. Um, <laughs> it's better than Arithmetist. Arithmetist is a neat idea, weirdly paced. Like the last chapter is the best chapter of the whole book. It's just odd. <laughs> and it's like an epilogue chapter. The Reckoners, which is like Steelheart and Firefight, they're, those are more like action-y. Like they're, they're more compact, so it's hard to compare. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably equal with those. Nothing really beats the Way of Kings and uh, Words of Radiance just because those are so massive. Words of Radiance for being a thousand pages, the plotting on that book is astounding. I mean, like, there's no wasted space in that book. Uh-huh. So I would say middling. Like, good. Like, I enjoyed it. I'd recommend it to Natasha. Not quite rant level. Like, I love it. <laughs> or rave level. Or rave. Yeah, I guess rave level. <laughs> That's what I meant. Okay. Rant level is something different. All right, let's talk about Tarkin then. Tarkin. Okay, so then I decide, hey, there's only seven Star Wars books in the new canon. Zach's been listening to them audio. I'm like, maybe I'll try one, see if I like it. And maybe I used to read a lot of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Tarkin was kind of, I really like Tarkin. Not the character, but I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but this book is a, it takes place... I don't know, 10 years before the first movie or something like that. Okay. They're building the Death Star. Uh-huh. He's in charge of the secret base that is, in, is building the Death Star. For those who aren't Star Wars nerds no. like us, yes. we probably should say who Tarkin is. He's, oh, he's, Grand Moff Tarkin. He, he's uh, in the New Hope. Um, he's the guy who basically blows kinda, up Alderaan. Yeah, well, and he's kind of overranks, outranks Vader, weirdly enough. The, the, the cool thing about this book, th- several cool things. One, the backstory in Tarkin, like his his home planet and like he has this kind of like call the wild sort of rite of passage he his whole family does to every generation hmm. so he has he's like he's been like out there hunting animals barehanded and stuff so it's okay that's really interesting how they play that in his relationship because this book's largely about how he and vader became i don't know friends is too strong a word but co co-workers co-workers <laughs> yeah because by the end of the book basically it's you know it's basically the emperor Tarkin and Vader are kind of like the dark triumphant of the Empire. Hmm. Does it mention, now that I think about this, does it mention Thrawn at all? It does not. That's interesting. Why? Well, I don't know. Just Thrawn being as important character as he was in a book that's all about the Imperial underpinnings, you'd think they'd at least mention him. Well, the be problem is, I, I, I really think, because Thrawn is such a popular character, they're probably not going to touch on a ten foot pole in the new canon. Yeah, because as soon as you say Thrawn, it brings in Mar. It brings up in, in people's mind ten thousand other things. Yeah, it's just kind of sad though because that's he's a great character. If you think, I hadn't thought about this before now, but that might actually be kind of a confirmation that some of those guys aren't going to be in the new yeah, canon. That's true. I mean, Thrawn could still been pretty low key at ten years before. Yeah, it's possible. I guess we don't really know. I mean, there was only a couple. I mean, Moffs, according to the book, were basically governors of large areas, Mm -hmm. and Tarkin got the Grand Moff title made especially for him to kind of be over whole sectors. The Mm -hmm. other thing about this book that was fascinating is just it was so technical, like the names of ships and things. I mean, it was not it was not your normal like swashbuckling Star Wars. It was a very much a kind of a political like mystery sort of. It was, it was paced pretty slow, but it was fascinating stuff. And then it pulled in a lot of Clone Wars stuff, uh-huh. which I haven't watched, but you could really tell that it was that the canon of that really worked together. I mean, Tarkin basically guessed that Darth Vader was Anakin. Okay, yeah. Um, he, it was never, he could never get confirmation, but... Uh, that's interesting. I've come around a little bit in terms of, uh, maybe because of Clone Wars and the idea that Star Wars can take a lot of different 
formed of yeah. storytelling in a sense. I didn't. I used to not like that idea, but I'm I'm coming coming around. And I guess, and even partly because the prequels are a very different type of yeah. stories than uh, original trilogies, and well, and different than a lot of other Star Wars. I don't stories. think Tarkin could have been written without the prequels, not just because of the time, but I think because the prequels were so political and created such a a more of a structure. Uh huh. It created books like Tarkin can exist. And but you, you couldn't have done it as well if you didn't know what the rest of the uh, world was that, like, yeah. is what you're saying. Because, you know, back when all we had original trilogy, anything that was older public was kind of shrouded in mystery. Yeah, exactly. And so now this is the only time now you can actually delve into some of that And then what, the, uh, the third thing I love about it is um, the idea, the Tarkin's mainly thing about ruling through fear and th- examining, he thinks he's right. I mean, having a bad guy as the main character is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but that... The older public was corrupt, and so he's trying to make a more efficient, better run government. And that there really is, you know, it's wrong, but this sense that, and you know, it plays out in real politics and both in like Roman history and you could arguably say nowadays that, oh, too much freedom, people just get corrupt. Therefore, we need to make everything organized and unilateral and and, um, systematized and. Mm. Those sort of big ideas are very interesting to me in a Star Wars because you didn't get those in the in the in the ones I used to read back in the Thrawn days because it wasn't it wasn't a topic. Sure, but you didn't have that sort of rotting republic idea. Uh huh. Interesting. So, anyways, I liked it, and then I guess I'll just as an addendum, I've started a New Dawn, which is also a new Star Wars movie. I'm about halfway through it. Um, much more of your swashbuckling. A, a new Star Wars movie? I mean book. Book, yeah. Um, it's right, but it leads into Rebels, which I have not watched either. Much more of your swashbuckling, you know, Han Solo, espionage, action sort of stuff. Um, I like, I'm just looking at your cover here, and yeah. it's nice to see that, because this is the character from the cartoon, yeah. right? Yeah. It's nice, it's just cool to see him in a different art style. Yeah, and he's, you can tell he's a little more not cartoony, even in his personality, or not. I, mean, I think Rebels <laughs> right. is a little younger. Yeah, I think age. it skews a little younger even than Clone and he, Wars. And he's did. a little, he, you know, he, get, he goes getting drunk every night, and, you know, <laughs> he, he's like the hair of the Twi'lek girl, Twi'lek, he's like, you know, wants a hit on and stuff. I think it's Twi'lek. Twi'lek? Okay. I'm not sure. I I don't know. But, um, and I'm not watching, so maybe it's like that in the cartoon. My guess is it's it's not particularly explicit here, but it's talked about. Yeah, just, which probably would not be on a Disney XD show, yeah. honestly. Um, and this one also talks about the whole, like, the main bad guy is this Count Vidian, who's uh, basically a efficiency expert, like a businessman. <laughs> but he's he's like a half, he's like almost all cybernetic, and he's he doesn't care what happens to people as long as it works and it works fast, okay. which is very much an empire sort of, it's, you know, it's like... Yeah, efficiency. But it's just a very interesting... The, I like this theme of the Republic become the empire and the changes that happened. I don't know, because I hadn't read that sort of stuff before. Cool. So that's that. I've enjoyed Tarkin quite a bit. This one's been good. But it's early yet. Yeah. Well, I'm halfway through. I mean, I oh, like it, okay. but I think Tarkin is probably a little more my favorite of the two. Okay. Okay, and you, Tim? Uh, I tackled the Divergent trilogy. Oh, yes. Yes, um, we mentioned that. We did mention that. I plowed through it maybe faster than it was healthy. I don't know. <laughs> uh, just over the last month and a half or so. Nice. Might be. Maybe I'm a little late to the boat. I mean, they're getting ready for the last move. Well, I guess maybe they split the last I book into know. two again. Why not? Anyway. Allegiant and Allegianer. Yeah. <laughs> I had family that recommended it. I knew Natasha really liked yeah. it. And I really enjoyed it too. It's um, by Veronica Gray Roth. Roth. Veronica Roth. I knew that wasn't right. Veronica Roth. If you aren't familiar with the basic story, it's young adults, post-apocalyptic dystopian, 
as many of them are. Or seen. no werewolves. Yeah. Um, in this one, the it takes place in a city that used to be Chicago, basically. Uh, there are different factions that are based off of basically traits, I guess, or virtues, depending on yeah. how you look at it. There's like the Dauntless who value courage. They, they each have a name that means basically the same thing as like the more common name for it. But it sounds cooler. It sounds cooler, yeah. Um, like amity. Amity. Uh, abnegation is basically the selflessness. They're, yeah. they're almost like the Amish yeah. in a sense. Very, uh, they try to lead very selfless lives and do all this stuff. Whereas then there's the erudites who are the scholars and uh, seeking knowledge and all that sort of thing. But anyway, the main character, her birth name is Beatrice. Uh, she leaves her her family's faction because all the uh, youth that when the, they have a coming of age ceremony, yeah. basically when they're 16 um, and where they choose which faction, whether to stay with their family's faction or they go to another one. And she chooses to go to the Dauntless, yeah. the warriors, the courageous type people. And so really, and what I didn't expect, because from the movie trailer, it looks like, because they also introduced very early on in the book's idea of divergent, yeah. where you have aptitude for multiple of these factions, yeah. which you're not supposed to be, supposedly. and Fit in your whole square pay. Yeah, and if you just look at the trailer, when I saw, because I, I saw the trailer like before Hunger Games or something, yeah. and I got the impression that, oh, she found out she's divergent, so the rest of the movie is about her training to fight the fight the power basically yeah. like like you do <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't fight the power come on but the first book is not really about that at all it's more about her training to be part of her faction i mean there are obviously conflicts come up over the course of the three books but not always in the way you ways you expect and i'm not going to go into lots of the specifics um it's interesting the third book this is a little spoiler, I guess, but the, the third book is paced very differently than the other two. The first two are very like, you know, hard hitting, lots of action scenes. And then the third book kind of takes a step back and a breather as they kind of explore the greater world, which I actually really appreciated because even in the first two books, I didn't completely buy the world setup. Like, why would society set itself up this way? Yeah. From reader's perspective, it seems pretty obvious that you should be able to embrace more than one of these <laughs> virtues. Yeah. You know, the, the kind of single-mindedness the factions encourage is not healthy. Yeah. <laughs> so from an outside perspective, you're like, why would society actually set itself up that way? And it's not until the third book where, I mean, I, and you go along with it just because yeah. you're like, well, okay, this is the story. Suspend disbelief. Yeah. I'll go with it. It's really it, a movie it, you really should just relax. Yeah, basically. And, you know, if you didn't have a story, it's still an interesting way to explore ideas and she explores lots of interesting ideas. Um, but in the third book, they kind of give a, what I think is a better explanation yeah. for the world at large and how this all got set up. But what I really appreciate about these books, I mean, they're, they're definitely page turners. You definitely yeah. want to keep reading to find out what happens next and good central characters. You care, Beatrice renames herself Triss and she gets into, of course, a romantic relationship with a guy what's his name um he's introduced as four okay but you talked about a five earlier in the podcast about what a five a guy named five Did, oh <laughs> <laughs> ironically i didn't even think about that <laughs> completely unrelated so now we have four five six and seven <laughs> in the podcast it's like a sesame street podcast <laughs> anyway <laughs> sorry so you've got that romance thing going on but what I, I really appreciated was um 
the way that she explored ideas. And Veronica Roth um, at least professes to be a Christian author and definitely has a different perspective to the dystopian scene that I've seen, you know, even from Hunger Games or yeah. I haven't read that many dystopian books, but it just, it felt markedly different than what a secular version of this yeah. would be in that there is a sense of hope. The, she gets into the themes of forgiveness way more often than most authors I've seen. Yeah. And she, these are not marketed as Christian books yeah. in any way. They're marketed in a secular audience. Um, you think Katniss not particularly forgiving? Um, <laughs> yeah. Katniss, forgiveness is not really something that Katniss thinks yeah. all much about. <laughs> Katniss is much more focused on survival, yeah. um, and which is understandable. But the Hunger Games books in general kind of have that. And it was they don't go into full on nihilism, but there's still sort of that sense of there's no one really good. We just kind of yeah. trudge through trudge all along, this, yep. basically. Nothing really matters. <laughs> But divergent, you you get a sense of you get a sense that there is hope, and that love between individuals is a huge redeeming factor for mm-hmm. a lot for a lot of characters. And I don't know, it was just really refreshing because it still has all the kind of hard hitting kind of ideas of survival and, yeah. and rough terrain that dystopians have, but um, it never felt it never felt nihilistic to me, and nice. that can be a fine line sometimes. Yeah. Have you seen the movies? I've not seen the movies okay. yet. I've heard they're substantially different, or at least they they turn different I at think, some point. Yeah. I, again, I don't remember what Natasha. I know Natasha said the second one is substantially different. I, I think the first one's closer. Okay, but I could be wrong on that. Well, I will probably I'll probably try to catch up because I know the the first Allegiant movie comes out in like next month or so. Soon, yeah, relatively soon. So if this is if that sounds something that's interesting to you, you know, check it out. I guess I should say the ro- it was interesting. The romantic scenes were a bit more um, intimate than I'm used to reading. <laughs> Not that they they never really explicitly crossed the line, but in terms of like where they place their hands <laughs> and br- and uh, where they kiss, and it's like oh, I'm not used to reading. This so they sort of they, thing. they they didn't in, they they implied more than you would like. Yeah. <laughs> There wasn't really implication <laughs> at that point. I wouldn't mind if they applied a little bit more, honestly. But, you know, that's just me being yeah. a guy. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, yeah, go check it out if that sounds interesting. Awesome. Um, and I think that's pretty good for our take on yeah, Tales. that'll work. We're going to wrap up with one more segment here, and that will be Project Update. Okay, Nicholas. Hi. Hi. What, uh, what have you been doing over at your website or in your other well, various projects? Well, I think since we last did Project Update, I have done, well, two things. One is that um, for Children Wells fans, the two of you out there, we were nearly done editing Greg's novel. And that I, was, I had a lot to do with the final edit on that mm-hmm. or the final content edit, I guess. Yeah. And I know we've said it's really close no, for a long time. No, it is really close. I mean, yeah. this thing's... Large. It's it, a full novel. It's a full novel. This yeah. we yeah. <laughs> but it'll be. I think it'll be enjoyable. So that that I was very happy to be done with that. Or there's a couple pages left. But and then I actually there's this story called. Well, I probably mentioned Sorism on here at some point, didn't I? Oh yeah, uh, probably. Anyways, this barbarian story we did for this Pulp Fiction project. project. Uh, if we've talked about it before, it would have been in relation with um, trap. I just lost. What's the the giant wild monster? Uh, book. Oh, Destroyer. Destroyer, thank you. Yes. All I could think was Godzilla. I'm like, it's not Godzilla. <laughs> um, Destroyer came from that same project. And I've, Sorism was a barbarian story that I started and then Aaron and Nathan worked on. And I finally did my, Nathan's been bugging me for many moons 
to uh, do an edit on that. So I did my complete edit, which is for me was retyping the whole thing in my own words because it, I I just don't like having different styles, even if they're good. Because it just it's weird to me. Sure. Tweaks himself. So hopefully at some point that'll be available in some manner. Nathan still got kind of okay because he wrote a lot of the original. Sure. And then for the 28th time ever. Um, I was going to say, Zorazim was distraction number 532, no, what, I, right? I, I came to, okay, here's a story about how apparently things work. So with the baby, not much creative juices lately. Uh-huh. And I got done with Greg's thing and Zorazim been done before that. I'm like, okay, I should try, start to work on something else. And I'm like, hey, it's about the time for Stratton and Fred. Strin and Fred. I know Strin and Fred, but I just I just was not feeling at all. And then I I, I opened up the old file from the the second third, the second part of the third book that I'm working on and read a couple chapters. And I'm like, oh, this is good. I forgot all this. And suddenly I was like, ready to go again. Oh, cool. Um, I thought about to start writing, but there are so many threads, and the Strin section I'm working on right now is very complicated thematically because he's. There's a lot of implications you have yes, to make. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or, or just all the characters are doing at the same time. Uh-huh. So I'm like, oh, I'll just start typing up what I have from last time. So I've typed up about 4,000 words. And that's nice because it gets me back into it. I'm excited. But here's the thing. As soon as I start writing Strand Fred, I get creative about lots of other things. <laughs> and I think I, I, I have jokingly said to Natasha the other day, if I ever finish Strand Fred, I will never be able to write anything else either. Because for right now, as long as Stranford is not done, I have ideas for other things. So I don't think that's true. But I don't think that's true. I'm not not promising anything about Stranford ever again, but I am working on it currently as I'm recording right now. I don't see a notebook out in Nick. Right here. Oh, okay. There it is. (laughs) Um, Oh, and I'm also, I guess I should mention um, the little kind of ad paper thing here in the Four County area. It's called the the Four County Mall. Okay. Um. Anyways, I have flight fictions in there every month now. They pay, oh, really? They pay me. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Like pulling from your catalog. No, of I do flash new fictions. Ones. Really? Because well, they they want kind of local flair, so they're all kind of like real stories, not like my more fantastical ones. Oh, okay. And like the one that just came out, deal Bixler Lakes in it. Oh, um, so cool. So I tried to place. I mean, they want you know it's a local place. I mean, it's, anyways. So that's fun. They pay me, and I get to write flash fictions, which. I mean, that's perfect. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I have three of those that have been published. Uh, they're on my website, too, normally. when After they come out there, I have permission. I put them on my website. So, like... Have you done that yet? Yeah. Like, the just Wednesday post... Uh, wait, no. Last Friday, I posted my most recent one, The oh. White Expanse. See, I think I might have missed that because you've been, you've been posting been, on Facebook a lot of your old ones. I have been posting a lot of my old ones. I guess I, this year I've also decided, just because my biggest problem is that no one knows me or reads me i thought hey all year i'm just gonna every monday wednesday and most fridays promote something i wrote uh-huh. and i can get through most of the year that way well i got 60 some flesh fictions and half a dozen good short good short stories and other projects so that's impressive I thought, at, at worst someone might read who hasn't at best or no at best i guess someone might read at worst <laughs> at, at worst, worst someone might read it no. <laughs> At worst, it just is it's a nice reminder to me of, oh, wait, I have done something while I was not doing Strand Fred. So that's cool. I would just like to mention, too, that yeah. um, not long after Mercy was born, I was reminded of a phone conversation I got from you or a, a phone call I got from you back when. About a story I need to write? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> about, now that about, about a certain story that you I was really intrigued by from you, but you said. Originally, you told me that you didn't feel like you could write it until you'd had a wife who had gone through 
pregnancy. pregnancy. Now we've done it three times. So, so it's not, you well, should be well, and it's not done it. yet, so it could do it any time. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that idea, um, there's this uh, called Fiction Vortex. They were opening up for, you make a world, and then like people can serialize different stories in it, mm-hmm. and they were having a contest to make a world. I'm like, I was really tempted to make that world and, oh, wow. and, and do it, except at the time, like I couldn't, I couldn't swing doing it. Uh-huh. I knew that as excited as I was about it, I couldn't keep up with it at that point because it, Mercy was about ready to come and et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had not forgotten that. I got a couple other ideas that now that Ryan Stern and Fred are coming to the forefront again. <laughs> like the pain machine. Someday I need to write the pain machine. Nathan, that's for you. Um, <laughs> all, right. all right. Tim, your project update. Well, let's see. I was trying to think about where to go with this because I knew we hadn't done Project Update in a while. A so long time, why, yeah. So if, I was like, uh... You did a Muppet video. Uh, yeah. Had I mentioned that since the last uh, time? Have you? That was way, like way back in September. Okay. I did, like I did a Muppet vlog. I thought about doing another vlog about uh, before the show came back on to talk about it. I just haven't gotten around to it. Which those of you who have listened for a while know and I've... I've expressed interest in continuing continuing some YouTube work, but have never gotten around to it yeah. for a variety of reasons. It, it's the curse of Stern Fred. When I finish Stern Fred, then you'll start your YouTube. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Now, I was talking with my roommate the other yeah. day about, because he's been starting listening to podcasts and he was asking, so have you done this? And, and it's like, well, or he was asking about, about uh, how much I've, I've written. And you know, taught New Wells Rising and Story Project and mm. a couple other things. And I was like, and I was like, and there's various other projects that have been in the back burner for a while. And he's like, you mean like Darian's story? It's like, oh no, people people remember that name now, <laughs> or at least they have the potential to if they go back and listen through podcasts. So you are held responsible now. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's it's weird having an audience sometimes. So I have not forgotten about those things. I'm still working through some personal issues and things that uh, get me in the way. Where my creativity has been going more recently has been, we've done some very elaborate things at my church recently, which has been really fun. Um, We did this huge thing for Super Bowl Sunday, where our church for several years now has, we do a food drive for our food pantry on Super Bowl with soup as in S-O-U-P. Yeah. And this, they went all out with like the football theme and basically formatted the service as if it was a Super Bowl broadcast, which included like a pregame show before the service even started. Um, so between like that and like videos that we showed during the service, we had to produce like 15 minutes of original co- video content, yeah. which is way more than I've ever done for our church service before. But I mean, it was a lot of fun. Um, we had like, like I said, there was like a, pre-service thing we did like player introductions as if the band was the the worship band was were like the the teams which yeah i know you're not a sports person or i'm, I'm not either but you know, <laughs> football teams will often yeah. say you know timothy deal taylor university yeah. either the their yeah. name and the school that so we did that that was fun awesome so and we did a couple one we replayed one of our old commercials and we did another a new one of spoofing like nationwide commercials nice so it was it was fun and so just little things like that. When was it? I did it for a junior high camp 
the junior high winter camp this year was zombie themed. Nice. And so we did this thing worth like the junior high pastor was like this German psychiatrist with a zombie. <laughs> He's like, so when did you first start feeling that uh, you were undead? <laughs> so stuff, little projects like that have been nice. fun. Cool. So I've been doing stuff behind the scenes, you know, obviously also managing uh, the podcast. Yeah, you do all the work on the podcast. <laughs> Let's just sit here and look pretty. And the weekly Part hijack. Sound stuttery. Sound pretty, I guess. Sound stuttery. <laughs> So anyway, that's our project update. If you would like to join with Project Update, we have a Jason's novel for you. (laughs) (laughs) We are yes, we are still looking for someone to uh, join our Children uh, of the Wells team. uh, Join the exciting uh, management team at Children of the Wells. (laughs) Earn benefits and experience. Benefits? Um, You could be our friends. (laughs) Free cookies. Free cookies at meetings. Um, Miss Science Theater nights. Hey, I mean, that that sounds pretty good, (laughs) honestly, to me. I'll join. (laughs) Also, if if there is something in our story school discussion about implications, you think there's something that we missed about another good example of a implied theme. Yeah, because I know sometimes we're up here and our brains go dead for good good examples. (laughs) Feel free to leave a comment about that at derailtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Yes. Um, You can also subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Leave us an iTunes rating. I guess that's a, a thing that helps. Yeah, I, I, help us get attention. Or, or just just tell people about the podcast. From what I hear, the people who listen to it like it. Yeah, I'm so crazy tell more enough. people, yeah. and they might like it. They just haven't heard our melodious voices yet. <laughs> you know what we need to do, though. You know, when you hear people's voices and you see them in real life, they're like completely different. We need to have faces for what we would look like from our voices. <laughs> That would be interesting. You have some fan art. If we ever had people who had never met one or, one or both of us before, yeah. have them draw and see what, what we, we look, look like. like. That yeah, would be interesting. Be There's another challenge for you guys. <laughs> All right, Nick. Um, man, the, the air in here is getting kind of thin. I'm having trouble breathing. The- it sounds like there's someone outside this place called Dave that the computer's talking to. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I'm feeling you better uh, go ahead and introduce your soundtrack Okay. Here, so let's leave. So, implication made me think... You test like mysteries and stuff, and Phoenix Wright has to figure out what the truth is from all the implications from the testimony or something like that. So that's my my loose connection to Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, Ace Attorney. And in any case, I think it's called a cross examination, sudden interjection. That's correct. All right, good. And I remember, and it's remixed by Prototype Raptor, which is a great name. <laughs> um, but I I don't know. I was just really digging this. Um, I guess it's called downbeat kind of hip hop style. I don't know. People objection. You should know. <laughs> I should know. I, I like it. That's all I care about. I just had so. to say objection. That's all. Objection. Not so fast. <laughs> That's great. So anyways, please enjoy. And we need to get the podcast to get us out of here now. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's open the podcast day doors uh, and leave. Okay. The podcast. <laughs> Because I, I got it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Adios, everyone. This has been Tim. This is Nick. Bye. See you later, Space Cowboy.